everyone, and welcome to episode five of the Parent Driven Development Podcast. I'm Josh Pitts, and I'm here with my friend, JC. Hello, everybody. I'm JC, and I'm here with my friend, Johnny. Hey, everyone. I'm Johnny, and I'm here with my friend, Kewoo. Hi, I'm Kewoo, and I'm here with my friend, Chris. Hi, I'm Christopher Sexton, and our guest today is Jonathan Wallace. Jonathan Wallace is a mentor, speaker, organizer, developer, and even an open source contributor. He's got three kids and a dog. Jonathan. Yes. Uh, in addition to that, most recently, um, thank you. I, I've uh, started a new adventure, which is a, a state legislature. Uh, so I started as a state legislator uh, earlier, second week in January. Uh, and so that adventure, uh, balancing that out with uh, my family and my kids has kept me uh, on my toes, if you will. Excellent. Jonathan, that is amazing. Um, and I um sure you have a lot of things to say about kids and legislature. So first off, do you want to talk about uh, net neutrality? And I'm really interested in how you think it affects kids in general. Yeah, I think it's important. Uh, the way I think about net neutrality is that uh, it's the principles that sort of undergirded the development of the internet where we have, uh, you know, if you think back to the OSI model, where we have different layers from the, the physical layer to the link layer, all the way up to the TCP, IP, all the way up the stack, it's important that those things are interoperable with one another. And I see net neutrality as sort of the, the tenets of it, or this, the things that facilitate the growth of the internet over the long haul. And so I think it's super important that we continue those types of philosophy going forward and that we don't allow the Internet uh, to ossify around specific business models, uh, both at the structural level and at the application layer. Uh, What I think of the application layer is pretty much anything above the socket, uh, the the, SL layer, security layer. So um, I think it's important that we have that. And the reason why I think that affects our children is because our children are going to be looking for uh, careers in the future. They're going to be looking for opportunities. And if we we allow that stuff to calcify, maybe inappropriately, we're going to make it harder for us to continue innovating going forward. So that's sort of my quick and dirty, like high-level overview of why I support uh, those aspects. I think there's a lot of nuance that we could dig into there, but that's just sort of the, the high high level broad brushes, if you will. That's really interesting. So one, one thing I'd be interested in sort of like digging into a little bit is like, like today, you know, for the people who are sort of like in tech and sort of like monitoring this sort of on the periphery, but not necessarily, uh, you know, uh, in the know on all the details, specifically, you know, how does sort of uh, the repeal of net neutrality sort of affect us as, as consumers day to day? You know, when I I wasn't involved in politics, I've been in tech for the last 20 years and uh, I've had kids for the last 12, but I, I didn't get super involved in politics, but I always sort of paid attention to this uh, a little bit. This is something that I was concerned about, especially being an application developer and concerned about how, how that could impact uh, the, the business climate going forward. Uh, so for those who may not be up up on the latest and greatest, the, the FCC uh voted to uh, repeal net neutrality, and, and, and that's that's a very loaded term, and it means different things to different folks, but the gist of it is, is an issue of who can regulate what was going on, uh, and the way I think of it is you have the big sort of telecom companies, you've got AT&T, you've got Verizon, you've got Comcast, those folks, and they want the flexibility and freedom to manage their networks in the way that makes sense for them, where that's, that makes sense from a business perspective so that they can continue to invest and innovate going forward, uh, and then on sort of on the other, other side, we've got the interest of 
of, uh, of the folks who are building stuff on top of the internet, right? We've got us as consumers who want to make sure that we don't have our free speech being a bridge because of, you know, either on a first order, you know, obviously on a first order thing, if somebody was censoring something, we would have issues with that. But even on a second order thing, I, the way I think about it, it's like a second order derivative of, you know, where we're not censoring, but we're throttling because of X, right? And if that ends up abridging free speech, I think that leads to a problem because I think we want to make sure that our, our, our square, our civic square, if you will, which is moving towards the internet, We'll get the best outcomes in the long hauls by having good, trustful discourse. So when we're talking about, you know, net neutrality, what's happened most recently is it was, you know, it was who gets to regulate uh, those tenants. And for a while, there's been pressure for the last 20 years or so trying to say that the Federal Communications Commission was allowed to regulate those things. And this is, you know, this started back in the 90s and even before that. But most recently, there was a bill in the 90s, the Telecommunications Act, that sort of kicked the can down the road. So ever since then, there's been pressure to say who can what the those infrastructural folks are allowed to do. And so the FCC is no longer allowed to do that. Now it's the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission. And my understanding is that they are going to come in and address unfair business practices. So they're going to make sure that if a company is misleading consumers, they're going to come in and address that. I think the concern there is one of resources. And whenever I think about this stuff from, from a perspective, you know, it's, I, I have a very computer focused mind, uh, you know, programming software. If you don't have enough CPU resources to address unfair business practices, how much of a deterrent will that be? And so we've got to be conscious of whether we're putting the rules in place ahead of time or coming in back and cleaning up afterwards. And I think the FTC approach is coming up to clean up afterwards. So that sort of brings us up to January. Since then, we've had states like Washington just passed a bill. The states are now starting to take a hand in trying to impress their view of how uh, the internet should operate, uh, whether it's let the, the way the, the federal government's currently going sort of drive it in their state, or are they saying, you know, I prefer to see uh, some ground rules sort of laid down and those ground rules that we've been operating under continue in the future. So let's go ahead and ensconce those in our, in our state law. Um, and so that's something that for me at the state level that I've been doing in Georgia is trying to have that discussion here at the Capitol. Especially as a state legislator, what are your opinions of having the states manage this themselves? Is that good, bad? Does that solve the problem? Or is it just a I step? Like, honestly, yeah. yeah. I, honestly, I think it could make things more challenging in the near term, but I'm hoping that um, we see some actions So at the federal level, right? So if, if one state says X and one state says is why, then it's going to make it more challenging, I think, for everybody to sort of determine uh, what the right thing to do is. But uh, one, of, one of the avenues that some states have chosen is they can't really legislate things that cross state lines. But what they can speak to is they can speak to the contracts that the state government is able to enter into. So uh, I want to say Montana, they, I believe they issued an executive order by the governor says that uh, if you're going to do business with the state of Montana and uh, you must abide by these principles, right? Uh, and so that's sort of the, especially in a sparsely populated state uh, like like Montana, uh, and the state government being such a large relative entity, I think that can have a little bit more impact. I think in the short term, it might be a little bit more challenging, but the, the insight that I've gleaned from being here is that the government that we, we get the government that we deserve. And, and I know people have used that phrase and it's sort of flippant and cliche, but but what it boils down to is that, you know, these I think that the, the, the gem in that is that these are ongoing discussions. And if we want to have input in that, we need to be engaged civically to help drive those conversations because they really are conversations. And the more, I think, participants that we have. Uh, I think the better off things become. It might slow things down. It might be 
uh, lead one to be impatient as I am personally, <laughs> um, which is one of my parenting challenges. Um, but, uh, you know, I think in the long run, we come out with a better outcome for the more people who are involved, even if it does end up taking a little longer than we would like. That's really interesting. So if we sort of like let the states sort of like decide this sort of thing, I mean, you could conceivably have a situation where, you know, if you live in Maryland, you know, and you have like Verizon gigabit, like uh, internet access, you would be able to get sort of like the fastest sort of um, uh, Netflix speed that you can, you know, limited only by, you know, the pipes themselves. Whereas if you live in Virginia, you could conceivably have that traffic sort of uh, throttle just by virtue of the laws there. Is that accurate? That might be accurate at a high level. I mean, uh, typically what you're seeing the companies do, you know, there's part of the reason some of this stuff was has taken so long is there was litigation along the, ra- along the way where, uh, if y'all remember when the, I- the iPhone first came out, you were, I don't think we were able to install Skype back then on there. And, uh, and their concern was that it would, you know, my understanding is their concern was that it would overload the network. So they were trying to preserve the network, that common resource for everybody by limiting the type of applications that might consume too much data and make it unusable and, and impede the results for other people who might be just browsing the web or things like that. So I think what it gets back to is for the individual states is that the, the, the companies, the, the AT&Ts, our providers, they have a couple of things that they've been that, that there's concerns around them that they might start doing now that the rules have changed a little bit or there's a little bit of clarity there. Uh, there's a few things. One is called zero rating, and that's the idea where uh, if you're AT&T and you have a video service and another person has a video service, you may charge that other person's video to go across your network. However, you won't charge for your own. You sort of zero rate out your own. The question then becomes, is that okay for that company? Do they, do they get to to determine that. And is that an unfair business practice? When does that cross the line? That's really the, the crux of the debate. There's um throttling that you could occur along the way. And typically in these laws, they want to say, eh, we're going to allow people to do what they need to. Uh, we're going to allow them to manage the networks the way they need to. Um, but then the question is, uh, when does that become too much and they're throttling folks and we get to a bifurcated internet where you have a slow and a fast lane. Now, I will tell y'all, as somebody who works remotely, <laughs> it drives me nuts if uh, you know they're watching Netflix and Hulu and something and I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to type in a terminal into a remote server somewhere and it's lagging and my children do that. So at that point, I'm like, oh, you know what? Let's bring on the quality of service <laughs> and let's determine which traffic is more important than others. And so that's sort of the same sort of the same question that I face there with my children. That's sort of the same question that that uh, that we're asking at that larger level, both at the state and the federal level. One of the things you mentioned, though, was the company promoting its own service for free. It doesn't eat your data plan, for example, and then another competitor services that might even be better quality or, or you know, w- would suffer that because, for example, right now we have the uh, my carrier provides some streaming services without using up data. Right? It's not theirs, but they have agreements. And I benefit from it that way where there is no, they can play favorites in a way. So I'm benefiting that I can stream Spotify all day if I want to. and It does not eat up my three gigs or six gigs or whatever my plan might be. Or if it's unlimited, but they throttle you after so much or whatever. So there's there's that benefit there, right? They can, they can manage it that way. Mm-hmm. I assume there's an agreement between Spotify and the carrier. And the same goes for other, other sites, other popular sites. I think Netflix is one of them as well. Uh, not that I would watch movies on my phone, but it's it's available, right? So there's that. You could say there's a positive aspect, but then the, the carrier could decide, hey, I'm just going to create my own service. It's an inferior service, but because now I can just say, hey, everybody else eats up data on your plan, but if you use ours, it's, it doesn't, then that's uh, almost like monopolistic maybe. Something like that starts getting, coming into play. Yeah. 
I don't know if the analogy is a clean one, but you also, that's sort of what Microsoft got in trouble for, right? They, they were they were bundling their browser with their operating system, and that was deemed ultimately to be, you know, unfair, you know, a, a monopolistic practice. And I think some of that was the share of the market. And when we, I think the other thing that's worth highlighting that you're touching on there is, is when we look at the providers is that we don't see the choice that we would like to see, the competition that we would like to see in all areas of the United States. Uh, in some, you know, maybe urban areas, you might have two or three, maybe four choices for your who's going to provide your that last mile of access to you. But that's not universal. There's places where that choice doesn't exist. That you're, you know, you either get the cable company or the telephone company. And if you don't like either of those, then it's sort of tough. You might not even get good cell coverage. And that that's the case for me in, in the district that I'm representing at the state capitals. There's some definitely more rural areas where you don't see that coverage uh, you, being you as solid one, as we would like. One big player, right? There's not enough people there for everybody to go in there so you probably have one big player and any other small services piggyback on the same on the same company and so Mm -hmm. one of the things i was talking about was cell specifically cell service at the moment if you have bad uh like uh fiber or cable or whatever for the most part you know everything just comes in without a data cap but i remember uh, one of the bigger ones had a secret data cap and they were preferring their services their services were not counting towards those data caps but everybody else was, right? And so Netflix was being throttled as well and these little things that come into play. So you, you do bring up rural areas and they're underserved a lot of times and just kind of forgotten, but it's anymore, everything is running on the internet. It's almost like you need it in order to be able to get anything done, to access government services, to access utilities, to access anything these days, to register your, your card DMV or whatever. They want you to go online and do something first or provide your proof of address or things like that. So maybe you can speak a little bit to to that about why maybe this net neutrality thing also would affect people's ability to function. I'd also be a little curious to hear a description of like, why would someone be against this, I guess, like other than, you know, they have a paycheck associated with in it in some way. I'm I'm assuming there may be an argument there. Yeah. You mentioned that there's, you know, there's there's definitely nuances to this. So, well, yeah, I think compar- yeah. comparing it to the to your family, and I'm trying to get my work done to pay the bills, and my kids are streaming Netflix and Hulu was was a was a great example. But I'd I'd love to hear kind of a little more insight on the the counter argument. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And so I think the counter argument, and I reflect back on that 1996 telecommunications. Act that passed at the federal level. And one of the things that that specified, uh, we were trying to facilitate access to uh, the internet then. And if, if y'all remember uh, back then, and for folks who are listening, remember back then, it wasn't as universal as it was now. And one of the things that they specified was that you had uh, CLEX and ILEX, and that you were required, uh, that the phone companies were required to lease out space in their equipment, their local equipment, you know, the, the, the telephone boxes, the colo boxes at the, you know, at the corner of your neighborhood where all their equipment might be hooked up, that they were required to lease space to other providers, right? And so when they yes. did that, the idea that they were going to facilitate competition. And I remember back then that I had multiple ISPs that I could purchase DSL from. Well, ultimately, all that DSL rode on the backs of Bell South, which was the the big, large telecommunications provider uh, for my area. And uh, so really what we were doing is we were purchasing a third party who had, they had to lease that agreement out. 
and I don't know, I, I, I'm not as confident of this, what I'm about to say here as maybe some of the other things I've shared, but what we saw is cable sort of leapfrog DSL in terms of speed. And I'm not sure if those two things are tied together that I just spoke to temporarily and put them right beside one another. But uh, when you look at that, what are the other comp- modes of competition that we should be having? We should be having satellite, cellular. And if we're restricting one of those modes or and how they, they work, then it could impede the development that's happening overall. So a cool development that I've heard a lot about I'm still hoping the promise proves out is uh, something called air gauge. I think it is. And it's ethernet over power lines, which was something that was discussed back in the early aughts. But my understanding is it's closer to fruition. Now the, the, the counter argument. And, and I think it's a reasonable argument is that if we are putting too many constraints on those companies and forcing them to do things that are not profitable for them, they're less likely to build out in the underserved areas because their resources are being diverted to another area, right? So if they're being forced to, let's say, carry all BitTorrent traffic irrespective of its uh, legality, uh, and that's consuming a lot of resources because it's a common thing that's occurring, whether it's being used for good or for ill, uh, then they're not able to, to prioritize building out in a rural area that is ba- basically is underserved. And so, uh, or maybe they're not able to invest in that next level of technology that would take them and allow us to provide, you know, 4K, ultra definition, whatever the latest and greatest video spec is, that level of content to everybody in the area because they're focused on doing these other things because they're constrained by the law. And I think that's that typical thing that we, you hear about, are we too regulated? Or are we not regulated enough? Are we making sure we're preserving the need for the for the public interest versus that private interest. Um, and I don't think it's an unreasonable argument to make either, um, And but I think it's always a discussion that we wanna make sure that we're still having and that we're doing it with as many people weighing in as possible, but we're also doing it in a, a fully uh, trustworthy manner that there's not deceptive practices going on. And I think some of the things that really concerned me about the, the FCC's uh, practices were around whether everybody was acting in fully faithful way of just representing the issue uh, reasonably. I have some concerns that maybe that wasn't necessarily the case. Jonathan, I wanted to ask you how your experience has been being a, a very technical person now working in this space with um, other legislators. I think everybody remembers the senator that famously referred to the internet as a series of tubes. And there's kind of this this perception that our lawmakers really don't understand technical issues. How has that been just talking with other lawmakers and do, do you find you have to do a lot of education yeah I, I think that's an accurate representation that that i'm bringing my expertise in one area but what's interesting about that is i'm also bringing my ignorance in other areas and i think when we think about you know, the gamut that we're expected law to cover right we've got uh we've got law like legal concerns we've got health concerns uh we've got education um, and when we're looking at all of these different areas there's areas that i'm where I'm not going to know what's going on. I'm going to need somebody else to break down an issue and simplify it for me. Uh, One of the reasons I was very excited to be able to represent the folks uh, of my district uh, was that I could bring that expertise that I think is not as common in in the the legislative sphere. There's not as many folks with technical expertise. I think that's a interesting function of our, our legislative process. So I was told when I came here that you're either one of three things when you come here, you're either rich, you're retired, or you're broke. Uh, because legislators don't get paid a great deal of money. Uh, and so when you think about that, if, if you're rich or retired, both, both of those things imply a lot of time. 
And our field is still rather young. You know, at most, I would say we're, you know, you can, might, might say they're three or 400 years old if you want to go back to like Babbage or whatever. But when we look at the modern computing age, we're really talking about 20 or 30 years. So though there's been a lot of wealth created, it's also been very concentrated. Uh, you just don't see a lot of folks in the legislature that have that, that, that background and is one of the reasons I was super excited to get here. But yeah, I do. That is one of the things I'm happy to do. But there's also a lot of process that goes along. There's a lot of tradition that goes along with uh, being a legislator. And um, my first job, you know, instead of running around telling everybody how smart I am with computers, has been to make sure I understand what that process is and don't step on the process along the way uh, and make sure that that I, when I'm exercising my expertise and sharing that with folks, that I do it in a way that's really moving conversation forward and also taking into consideration who else is speaking and and where they're coming from uh because the one thing i've learned and boy can't we appreciate this as tech people is that when you peel back the 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 covers on the layer of abstraction and look underneath it it can get a lot hairier underneath uh and it can be a lot more complex and nuanced than we give credit for and i think the same thing applies to the legislative process which uh is making it fun i'm curious on your views of how net neutrality relates to just basic human rights you mentioned a second ago about as as these rules get set, it's going to be harder to change them in the future down the road. And I feel like those basic rights are very easily affected early on. And then after a certain amount of time, it gets harder to, to adjust, to correct. But yeah, if it, do, you, do you have any thoughts on, on this in, in human rights? Yeah, I think this goes back to what I see as sort of our foundational thing. And, and, and this really... I think also touches on my philosophy as a parent, which is the right to free speech, right? So going back to the internet is becoming our, our public sphere where we're doing a lot of the communication around issues that are important to us. We want to make sure that we preserve that and allow folks a free a free exchange of ideas uh, with folks without, in my opinion, we've got to be careful about not uh, allowing the power of technology to, to enable harassment too much. So we've got to be, there's got to be communication with respect, right? And um, uh, when I think about how that you know that relates it relates to what I do with our children. My wife and I do with our children is that we're very conscious of our our children as as an individual person, right? And I think it's easy to not think of them as a fully fledged person because they don't come out as fully fledged. But one of the things that we've endeavored to do is treat them as such as as soon as we can, but with grace for the the, the that the fact that they may be three or five or seven or nine and, and understand what their capabilities are. But even so, give that sort of human rights. So uh, the thing that I comes to mind uh, immediately is the, the right to say no and stop, right? So uh, on the internet, uh, if you're on Twitter, people can just flood you with information uh, and harassment if they want. Um, but if you ask somebody to stop, they should be able to stop. So if our children, when we've, we've like play tickling games, if you will, and they ask us to stop, we stop, you know, even if they're having fun, it's like, okay, they said, they said no, or they said stop, we actually stop. So uh, I think when we're talking about like, the, the net neutrality and how that stuff ties in is recognizing that that we want to make sure that we're honoring that number one of that First Amendment, which I think is foundational. If you start controlling the discourse and how communication happens in a way that is maybe going too far, you you, you can really change the conversation and then you can start abridging all of the other rights that come after that. So I don't know. Does that answer your question? Is that is that what you were getting at or did I wander far afield? No, I think so. And I think kind of related to that is the government doesn't run the ISPs. So the First Amendment is how the government can can control what we say, but it's instead these companies that run it. So mm-hmm. it, it seems like it would be important for there to be rules saying that the companies that provide our uh, means of communication can't control what we say. 
Yeah, and this I think this goes into that concentration of power, right? And uh, that that's where I, is that it, that's where I feel like I hear you going. Is like if if the power is concentrated in the hands of a few, then it's very easy for them if they're not uh, wise and moderate and their and and the power that they have, they can easily uh, you know take it in a direction that maybe doesn't respect the foundation, you know, the ideals that we we founded the country on. Right, and personally, I I, I very rarely attribute any sort of. Uh, evilness to corporations. I think they are more machines that just respond to to their stimuli <laughs> versus having super secret agendas and and well thought out evil plans. But sometimes those those inputs can make the machine, you know, inadvertently, you know, have side effects. And that's why they're you know having having laws in place in order to make sure that free speech isn't hampered by you know the way that everybody communicates all the time. <laughs> It yeah. seems very important that we're not going back to the, well, I've got to go to uh, the city square and, and stand on a box and yell, you know, and instead I want to communicate with my phone over the internet because that's how I communicate to everybody. Yeah, um, I, I definitely think that there's a need to do that going forward at some point. And, and it's 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 a question of um, the, the litigation that was occurring in the in the late aughts and the, the mid aughts and the late aughts around this was seeing that the company is starting to, to explore business models that could impede those things going forward. And I, I think to me, this sort of touches on like we're talking about the internet, internet or I am talking about the internet as a, as that sort of that bastion of the public square is it, this gets into like um, attention, right? I think of attention as the commodity, the, which is tied into time, you know, time is irreplaceable, but attention is the, the commodity that with that we have control over, right? We can't control the passage of time, but we can't control what we're paying attention to along the way. And I think if we're not careful and companies uh, get too much say over that, uh, whether it's our information or where our eyes are focused, uh, you know, I think that's, the con- that's a concern that I definitely have. One of the things that I've definitely respected throughout this process is how complex and nuanced things are and how important it is to be very careful and discerning what we should do going forward because uh, sometimes those unintentional consequences can be much more than we intend, you know, much more than we bargain for, much more than we want to see happen. Speaking of attention, Jonathan, you were involved in technology and private enterprise. Now you're in the public sphere. How do you manage your attention with your family? How have you found that transition? <laughs> it, it must be really hard to tell your kids, no, uh, I, have, I have to go make the world a better place right now. <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, and I, I've got a good story that sort of really highlights what that looks like. So I, I decided to run in September for a special election. Uh, and uh, the election date was November 7th. So we're looking at eight or nine weeks. And I had a full-time job uh, as a uh, software engineering manager for a large company. And I tried to make it all work, which means that, you know, there, there really is a zero-sum game when, it times to, when we talk about how much time we have, which meant my family got the shorter end of the stick. Now, I was fortunate enough to be selected by the folks in my district to represent them, uh, but I did have a work-related obligation come early December, and I went flew out to, to California to do a work training, and my son asked my my wife, he said, you know, is daddy in still in the Senate? If so, is anybody still running against them? And may I have their <laughs> sign? So he was... <laughs> he was 
he was ready to start lobbying against me and start advocating for my opponents, uh, which I think sort of drove, wow. <laughs> drove home to me, you know, where that time had came from. Um, and so I've definitely since then been tried to be a little bit more careful. One of the things I did, I did end up leaving that company um, uh, in part due to the time commitments that I knew that were involved with both this job and that job. And I've chosen another job that I'm going to be starting later this week, but with the upfront understanding that they're going to be uh, considerate and uh, flexible with respect to this, the work that I'm doing here. And I'm hoping that leads to less stress and a little bit more family time over the long haul. But the, the real answer is that without the, you know, without the permission and uh, consideration of my wife, who's has the shoulder more of the burden, it really is a sacrifice. It really is a service to others. Uh, and I think, you know, when we talk about I, you know, my, one of my favorite things is like you can't solve a people problem with technology. And I think when we talk about, you know, the, the, the black box of these companies, it's challenging to solve these incentives that force companies to behave in certain ways with law. Uh, and, and so to me, it gets back to like, how can we incentivize folks to be comfortable with service? Uh, and I mean, that's a super privileged position to be in to say, oh, I have enough time and flexibility and have a supportive family that I can give up, you know. Uh, I can be gone extra time and serve folks, but it's important to realize that's what makes our, our 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 society function, and I think that's one of our strengths. So, hopefully, just I, and one of the reasons I was happy to be here was to talk about that because it's something that's been very close to my heart, and I think is important. And you know, when you talk about that, she's doing great, but there's also her parents, who again we're very fortunate and blessed that they're able to provide uh, some support for us along the way, whether it's you know something breaks in the house and her. I was able to come and help. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a really, it's, it's only through others support and effort that I'm able to do it is what it boils down to. That's amazing. I, I guess I had the impression that, you know, state legislature was a full-time job. <laughs> I mean, no, it is. I, I'm sorry. It obviously is a full-time job. I had the impression that was your only job. Do you, are, do most state legislature, um, members of the legislature juggle multiple jobs? Yes, the majority do actually. Yeah, it's uh, in the state of Georgia. It depends on the state. Um, I think in California, for for example, I think they pay a, a great deal more um, than they do in Georgia. I think we we receive seventeen a salary of seventeen thousand dollars a year, um, and the obligations are, are ultimately that we need to be in session forty business days out of the year, and that starts in the second week in January and goes through sometime uh, in March. So this year we'll finish up March twenty ninth. Um, the two things that that make a challenge one is it's not enough. Uh, money for somebody to, to to just do it as a single job and they have you know you, you see folks who are retired through the military they put in their 20 years and they have uh, some some uh, money coming in from their service and then they are able to augment that with this work and so there's a few folks like that who are doing it but in general it's, it is a part-time job with I think full-time obligations and you know maybe that's a great description of parenting too right <laughs> <laughs> We try to do it on the margins of our lives, around work, around sleep, around fun. We're trying to parent, but ultimately, uh, it takes a lot of time and attention. So, Jonathan, uh, being in, in you're a uh, big technologist, and you've you've been doing this for you said almost 20 years, I think. You've had children for 12 years, I think, is what you said at the beginning. So, um, how have you introduced technology? into your children's lives as they've gotten older and as, you know, gone through phases and, um, have you managed, uh, at 12 years old? I mean, I think iPhone came out a year after your first kid was born, probably somewhere around there. So mm -hmm. they've, they've, they've had access to amazing devices their whole lives. You know, it's different than how we grew up. So maybe you can speak a little bit to that on how you've, you've brought that into their lives and how you've made it, you know, uh, incorporated that into, into your, uh, your lifestyle since, uh, it's what you do as a technologist. 
this is my moment of shame. If I'm going to be honest, that the, the the main way is to give them screen time, right? <laughs> is to give them screen time on a, on a handheld device watching a show or something. And that's probably the main way. I've definitely tried to encourage my oldest child, uh, Chloe. Uh, I've tried to introduce her to Scratch, that the software development platform. I've tried to do the same with uh, my middle child, Callie. And, you know, we will play games like there's there's some educational games that we'll play. But I would love it if one of them sort of caught the bug a little bit. But I didn't catch the technology bug until I was out of uh, school, until I got into college. You know, so it's not appealing to them. I, I was much more interested in being outside and playing or playing video games than I was in, in terms of programming for programming sake back then. So uh, I just try to make sure that they know that I'm there and willing to help out and facilitate those things. And then I guess in general, my expectation as a parent is that uh, I want to try to encourage them to be self-sufficient. So uh, being able to use an iPad or, or the remote control, if you will, those types of things. There's there's nothing been more explicit than that, and and a lot of it, like I said, is has been uh, introduction of technology through laziness, I guess, if you will. I I don't think it's laziness. The kids wear you down. I mean, they wear down. <laughs> that's they a, that's beat so you tired. into into submission, <laughs> and you just give in. I mean, they went every time. They're relentless. Do you call it lazy if you if you don't want to program after you've been programming all day and uh, <laughs> full time, and then legislating all day full time. <laughs> oh, though I do want to mention that one of the best targeted ads I have ever received, I think, is Amazon keeps showing me ads now for this like it's like a Montessori approved coding toy that is analog. So it's like, oh my God, it's like coding supposed to help with coding uh, teaching and uh, without a screen of some kind. And mm. I really want someone who has an age appropriate kid to test that out for me is that is that an abacus what is that it's a wooden blocks yeah yeah it it looks very beautiful i mean it was just one of those things where it popped up and i was like oh internet you're so creepy but so helpful sometimes too (laughs) well speaking of algorithmically suggested montessori approved toys this is a great time for us to uh, segue into our Genius and Fail segment. So every week, we go around and we talk about a parenting genius or a parenting fail moment that we had over the past week. Johnny, do you want to get started? I'll go with a, a win, and it, it was an inadvertent win. Um, so as I mentioned in the past, uh, my family doesn't subscribe to uh, cable. Traditionally, we stream everything online, and the streaming device that we use for the kids primarily sort of just crashed out on us uh, about a week or so ago, and I did not go out and replace it. I just sort of let it be broken and sort of re- restrict it internet access at that point and turns out the kids were just fine they just kind of got up and played with each other and sort fought with lightsabers and stuff like that and so i felt pretty good to kind of hear you know a little bit more laughter and playing and chattering in the house and so i was feeling pretty good about that awesome i can go next i'm i'm gonna call this a genius it's definitely on the giving kids screen time tip My daughter is 10 and she is discovering the joy of bingeable screen content. And so it's been a challenge to uh, find stuff that she's interested in and yet we can spread out. Like I, I honestly don't want her like, you know, binging five hours of anything ever. So uh, we, we're pretty much a Netflix family so far, but we do have an Amazon Prime subscription. So we, we get videos on um, Amazon Prime for free. We just haven't really explored them yet. We sat down to watch something and we're like, you know, I think 
we're going to help you find something. Uh, we flipped around and we found a series called Just Add Magic, which is about three young-ish girls about my daughter's age, 10 years old, and they find a magical cookbook and they get into all sorts of trouble. Lessons are learned. Um, friendships are made. The really surprising thing is that my husband and I are just as into it as my daughter. Um, so it's kind of become this nightly routine that we'll watch like one episode with her. And it's been really nice bonding with her over a program. Uh, it's also been really nice asking her questions about what happens on the program, um, kind of leveling up her her expertise in understanding story structure. So that is uh, Just Add Magic streaming on Amazon Prime. We're at that stage where we're introducing solids to our six and a half month old now. And the food of these last few days has been avocado. You know, with, with, a, with a baby, you're only feeding them like a couple teaspoons at a time at this point in time or whatever. So my parenting genius was like, oh, well, I don't want the avocado to go bad anyway. Like I, you know, won't make sure like real, you know, I really want what's best for my kid. Like we can, we can cut open a fresh avocado for him tomorrow, but what are we going to do about all of this leftover avocado? I guess I just have to eat all of the rest of it. Oh no. <laughs> so I have been having avocado for dessert these last two nights, basically. Oh, it never stops. You will eat so much of your kid's food over the next couple of years. <laughs> It's great though. I'm I'm happy to eat avocado like a fruit. Pretty great. Awesome. I talked last week about um or last episode about my big fail uh with my daughter. So this this time around I had a, a, a win, a genius moment with my daughter, which was great. Uh we had a daddy-daughter dance at the school and it's a third grade and fourth and fifth grade, I think. So she's a third grader. She had not necessarily said she wanted to go until almost the last minute, and then so we went and we went to dinner with some other kids and their their parents and went to the dance and most of the time when you go to these dances with your little kids they just ditch you and go play with their friends and uh, this time you know she actually stuck around and and we had fun and then they had contests to win giant heart balloons uh the mylar balloons but it was they're huge and so the first contest was a, a dance contest, and she didn't want to do that. She was too shy for that. But the second contest turned out to be a tie-tying contest, and uh, she ended up doing the best job and tying my tie almost perfectly. And so we ended up winning that. So that was the, the genius moment when my daughter was able to tie a tie properly and uh, win that contest. So she was very proud of that. And I thought, oh, that, that was a really good memory to make with, with my kids. So that was our genius for, the, for this week. Cool. I have a sort of a genius and a fail. If I can share both of those, I'm Absolutely. happy to do that. Great. Uh, so I'll go with the fail first so I can end on the positive note. But uh, this last Sunday, you know, one of the, one of the things that's tough is, is I'm typically gone during the week right now. And uh, I came home and we were hanging out with the family and very busy on Saturday, going to birthday parties uh, and those sorts of things, uh, taking children to sports activities. But on Sunday, uh, I'm, my, my middle child, she suffers from anxiety. So there's, she, uh, there's times where she'll get very anxious. And one of the things that we've seen is it's not, you know, especially if you're ever experienced anxiety, I know that I have and my wife has, is that it doesn't, it's not necessarily rational sometimes anxiety. It's, and it's, and so my parenting fails, um, I sort of saw the warning signs earlier in the afternoon, but I was also feeling that anxiety knowing that I was going to be gone during the week. And I did not do my best as a parent to be ready and present for her when she was anxious. And uh, I got impatient. 
Um, so that was definitely my parenting fail. It's just uh, even though I'm smart enough, you know, the logic is there uh, and the heart is there. Uh, sometimes the self-care needs to be there as well to make sure that we can be our best selves for our children. And I think I missed that opportunity for to be at the best, you know, the most supportive that I could have been at that time. And uh, she, she forgave me uh, in that moment. But um, but then I guess the parenting genius is, you know, we, we talked a little bit about technology. The thing that uh, I always recommend to folks that I think is really fun that I've done uh, with both the, the older two children and I'll do with my uh, youngest here soon is a, a tool that you may or may not have heard of called Dragon Box. And it's a way to teach the concepts of algebra to uh, your children uh, in a very uh, sneaky way, I think it is, because it starts to teach you uh, like the identity property and those other algebraic terms, but it's doing it in a way that's just it's, it's just very sharp how it's introduced to them. It starts out with uh, these little sort of flashcard like the things on two sides and you're always trying to balance the equation, but they're like pictures of bugs. And so after they're like trying to get the the, uh, the inverted color bug with the regular colored bug to, to connect and, and cancel one another out, they slowly start introducing uh, symbols instead and start introducing numbers. And it's just a really, really cool way. And it's a fun way to spend time with them and, and do problem solving. And it helps them, you know, it's almost got, if you've ever seen the game, the game on iPhone or iPad or Android, cut the rope, it's got, you know, scores and tries to tell you when you max out that type of stuff. So it's a really cool way to introduce that. I suck in that game. I, I, did that with both my kids and and was very impressed at the concepts that they were able to figure out on their own. That sounds awesome. Well, Jonathan, I want to thank you so much for your time. Um, it was great hearing about your career and your insights on net neutrality. Where can people find you and follow you if they want to engage with you more online? Sure. Um, I'm on Twitter. Uh, that's probably... The easiest place, I'm also on Facebook as well, but on Twitter, you can check out my handle, which is just my first name and my last name. It's Jonathan Wallace. Uh, and then I have a political handle where the political work stuff happens, uh, and that's just Wallace for 119. Uh, so if anybody wants to reach out to me there and chat about anything net neutrality or parenting related, um, I'm happy to do so. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, I also want to remind our listeners that we are standing ready and willing to answer all of your questions, give you terrible solicited advice or <laughs> just confirm that you are not a bad person for giving your kid an iPhone at the restaurant. True story. Um, you can email us at panel at parentdrivendevelopment.com. If you want to tweet at us, we're on Twitter at parentdrivendev. And if you want to support us, we would be more than honored. We have a supporters only Slack community that we chat in all the time. We're on Patreon at parentdrivendev. Jonathan, thanks again for joining us so much, and thank you all for listening. 